We're really looking this morning at the subject of Armageddon. Armageddon and then the millennium. I put it in that sense because a lot of people have questions in regards to what is Armageddon, uh, what is the millennium. So I appreciate those who have been here, especially to hear the book of Revelation. It is good. So we're going to continue a little bit further. And we've done a lot. We've gone through... Um, I've been trying to do this as we've been going through the book of Revelation is note the things that are the most hardest to understand and the questions people have the most questions about and that is we usually we wonder who are the four horsemen and um, what are the seven trumpets and then who are these two witnesses we read about in Revelation 11 and I think a lot of it we get and we understand when we read Revelation 12 we can figure out who the red dragon is that's Satan and then we read about this beast who's persecuting the church and then we see this other beast as was a part of our reading this morning that Ray read for, for, for us from Revelation 16 that that is the false prophet and he is stirring people up to worship the beast this government and world power now, I believe in the context of what we've been reading in Revelation that this is directly talking to Christians in the first century about the Roman Empire and about the emperors at that time. But I think as we've seen, the things that happen here in the book of Revelation continue to repeat themselves throughout time. And then we're going to see a definite repeat of, this, of a worldwide persecution and God's deliverance of Christians in, in Revelation chapter 20, which we will look at this morning as well in regards to the millennium. Before we get into our study, I ask that you pray with me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we thank you for the scriptures, and we ask your blessings upon us right now, upon our hearts and our minds, that we are able to focus upon these scriptures and that we are to gain from the book of Revelation, that we will have the endurance that you are trying to give us here, that we will be strengthened by your word and strengthened by your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for the blessings that come from studying the Bible. Father, are there others on our minds and hearts right now that we are praying for? And Father, I specifically ask your blessings upon uh, those who uh, are Christians and upholding the faith and enduring persecution right now, especially those in Afghanistan. Father, we ask your blessings upon them. And Father, help us in any way to, to be with our brethren wherever they are through persecution and hardship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the big questions that comes up in the book of Revelation is whether you think and see and perceive that Christians are reigning with Christ now. Now, I take the position that we are in the midst of this millennial period of a thousand years that's figurative, that we are in this period of time and that we are reigning with Christ and that those who have died uh, for the cause of Christ in the first century are there petitioning on our behalf. And that this is going on now. Now we've seen from Revelation chapter 1 that the kingdom of Christ has come. That is on the earth in the form of the church. And that there is a greater sense in which the kingdom is coming as well. So all those things should give us encouragement. And what we looked at last week from Revelation 13 and 14 is that we are being encouraged to endure. We are the endurance. While things in the world seem to be going crazy, we continue to stay focused, knowing that Christ is with us, that he will work about justice. He will do what is right. And what we do is we live according to his example, sharing the truth of God's word, loving and caring for others, knowing that we are ultimately victorious. So as Christians, are we reigning with Christ? And I think we could all agree, in some sense, we are. And some might say, I don't think we've gotten to the point, and I've had some brethren say this, I don't think we've gotten to the point where we have peace like is described in Revelation 20 in this millennial period. And so some who hold that position would be 
called a premillennialist. Some would say, listen, I think that that time of peace is long gone, and now we're seeing secularism rise up in the world. When we look back in the 20th century and we see the, the atrocities uh, under the name of communism as communism or socialism and the great evils that happened in the 20th century, it seems to me that we've come down to a post-millennial time and that Christ is coming back any moment. So there are, there are different thoughts there on that. And I think that as long as you're not taking a, a perspective that says all revelations in the past and you're saying there will not be a, real, a literal new heaven and new earth or, or new Jerusalem or that if you're saying things like there won't be an actual resurrection, I have heard those who claim to be Christians say that about the book of Revelation and say, oh, it's, it's all in the past. Every reference to resurrection there is figurative and that it's not literal, it's not going to be real. That is the end result of a, of a heretical teaching of being what is called a preterist, meaning you view all of Revelation in the past. There are some who hold the position of premillennialism who will say, listen, the kingdom is in the future and the church is not the kingdom. In fact, the church was more of a parenthesis, that it was more of a, an accident and that Christ had to set up the church because, well, he failed at setting up the kingdom because the people were rebellious. I very much disagree with that. And when I read Revelation chapter 1, and I look at verses 5 and 6, and John says, you are the kingdom, we are the kingdom. That, that's the truth of it. When I read Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, you've been transferred into the kingdom, we've been transferred into the kingdom. We're a part of Christ's kingdom and in his reign. And so he is our great king, and we submit to him, and we follow him, first of all, over all others. And that is one definite message from the book of Revelation. Because we've had part of Revelation 16 read for us this morning, I'm going to leave most of the reading to you. But what I'm going to look at right here is what we see here is we read about these sevens. We've been reading about sevens throughout the book of Revelation. So we read about seven seals on a scroll that were broken that revealed different events that we see in history uh, that, that have repeated themselves but certainly took place in the first century and in the time of the persecution of Christians by this individual and empire known as the beast. Okay, that's what the text says. So we've seen the seven seals. We've read seven trumpets of God bringing justice on the earth. And now, when you get to Revelation 16, you get seven bowls. Seven bowls that are pictured here. Okay, this is a symbolic book telling us things that are happening in the time and things that will, um, again, going to repeat themselves in some way in the future. So those bowls are poured out of God's wrath upon the beast and upon the false prophet and those who worship and as we read about last week, who receive the mark of the beast. So the mark of the beast in simplicity in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 13 and in 14, we read about in chapter 13, this mark was necessary, and also in chapter 16, necessary for you to be able to trade or buy in the marketplace. And we see in the times of the Caesars that you had to show that you worship them, worship the pantheon of the Roman gods, and you were not a Christian for you to be able to sell and trade. So that did happen uh, specifically in the third century under two Caesars. Uh, and it may have happened in other times under Domitian and Trajan as well. But this is what we see in Revelation 16 again. You get these bowls of wrath, and you go and you begin reading them. And these things are coming upon, this is God's justice coming upon those who do not have the mark of the beast, who are not worshiping the beast, the government, essentially. The empire that's ruling the world, who's telling people do not worship God and Christ. 
So we also see a little bit further here in chapter 16, 8 through 11. We see that those who worship the beast, when these bowls of wrath came upon them, they didn't repent. Now, we read in Romans, it says the kindness of God is meant to bring us to repentance. But we also see the wrath of God and His justice. And you would think that somebody would be of some mindset when they're seeing God's kindness and the goodness, the blessings that He gives us every day in our lives, and then when they see what it's like to rebel against God, to rebel against Him, and what it's like to live apart from Him, that they would come to some kind of realization, I need to change. And some of us do. But in this case, we're seeing those of the mark of the beast who are worshiping the beast are not repenting. Instead, what they're doing is cursing God. So that's the picture there. Then we have an interesting description here. Now, one thing I haven't figured out why that we have a description here of frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon and the beast. Again, it's symbolism. But evidently, they're representing some kind of demonic force. But what they've done is we have a picture here, the dragon, the red dragon. The scriptures say very clearly in Revelation 12, this represents Satan. Satan has a means of persecuting Christians and declaring war on the world. He does so with the beast. And then he has the false prophet who is promoting this. In simplicity of terms, Satan in the first century took the Roman Empire, persecuted Christians, and in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, they had a worship of the emperor, imperial worship, where they were promoting and saying, you must worship the beast, and if you don't, you're persecuted for it. Now what we also read here is that they all gather together. The, the beast, the false prophet, gather together the kings of the world for this great battle. And I think about these things, and I think about um, you know, movies probably seen, maybe, uh, or books you've read, Chronicles of Narnia, or if you've read Lord of the Rings, and maybe some things like that. I get some of those pictures there of this kind of epic battle going on. So they've assembled the king's of the world to battle at Armageddon. Now, I say to battle at Armageddon because when you get to battle to, to Armageddon and you see what happens there, there is no battle. You maybe, you, maybe you've heard the description of battle of Armageddon. It's really the victory at Armageddon. It's already decided and it's already won. And it's a very amazing thing to read there. Another thing to, to note here about this place, Armageddon, it's at the base of Mount Carmel. You remember when Elijah in the Bible, when he defied the, the prophets of Baal? He was on the Mount, on Mount Carmel. Now, down in the plain, down at the base of that mountain, is Megiddo. And the range there is Megiddo. In other words, this is Armageddon, this whole area. So you've got the mountain, essentially, of Armageddon. You've got the plain of Armageddon. And then there's actually a city there called Megiddo. And there's a lot of things that took place at Megiddo. There's a lot of pagan worship. There are a lot of human sacrifices that were found there, archaeologically, that they've dug up. Dug up. Uh, there have, and there's a number of scriptures right here I have up there. Uh, just enough for me to change the screen before you can write them all down. But there's a lot of them up there, but there's a number of references in the Old Testament where there were battles, there were wars there. King Josiah is one that comes to my mind. He faced off with Pharaoh Necho. Okay, Josiah was a great king, but the one time he disobeyed and he did wrong, he did it in defying Pharaoh Necho and he died there in battle. And so you have an example there of King Josiah. There are others, maybe, maybe uh, the judge Deborah, remember her? And the conflict and the battle they had was also there at Megiddo. So some of those come to your mind, and you can look at a number of these other scriptures. Now Zechariah and, Ezekiah, sorry, Zechariah and Ezekiel both talk about a coming battle. And Zechariah specifically, again, is alluding to this, this epic battle of God that is coming 
in his victory. So we're going to look at that a little bit further. All right, so Megiddo, as I mentioned, was a city at the plain of the, ba- of the base of mountain range of Carmel. So it's a place of battles, and, and for the most part, it didn't always go to the side you thought it would go to. But in this case, what we're going to read about in this battle against the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, they've assembled this army. What's going to happen here? What does the text mean by this? What is happening? What you really have a picture of here, and what we're going to see later, is that you have the forces of evil persecuting Christians. That's the picture here in Revelation. The book of Revelation is to tell Christians, you must endure. There's going to be times of peace. There's going to be times of persecution. When you're going to be pursued. And when you're going to have difficulties. So the text here gives us that description. They're gathered for battle, but what happens here? We're going to look at that in a moment. Now, I do want to read a section out of Revelation 16 that we've read a little bit before. So I'm going to look at the sixth bowl that's poured out, and I think also the seventh. Because this is what we read here in Revelation 16, 12 through 14. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So the Romans feared the Persians over the Euphrates, and they would ride on horses, and they would they were decked in armor like medieval knights, and they would shoot, they would use their, their bows, they would shoot straight from their horse, and the Romans hated this because the, they would come in on them and, and retreat. And so you got this picture here of these armies. Now this also reminds me of the, what was it, the, the sixth trumpet that's in Revelation chapter 9. So you got this war, these events that have been going on. So Rome is afraid of this. You've got kind of a, a picture of this coming fight. Uh, and then we keep reading here. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. I don't know why the description of frogs. Maybe they're going to hop out. That's what he's seeing this. This is a vision, okay? These are not literal things. These are symbols for what is happening. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. And what's the point here? Is that they're deceiving the nations to gather together for war. The kings of the whole earth, it says, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. And then we read in verse 15 and 16, Behold, I am coming like a thief. These are the words of Christ. Jesus says, I will come like a thief. I'll come when you don't know it. He says, blessed is the one who stays awake. So you've got these words of encouragement through the scriptures. And he's saying here, stay awake. Keep his, and it says, and keep his garments on. He's ready to go. Sounds like Passover. They're ready to go. And that he may not go about naked and be, be seen exposed. And so you've got this description of shame that's throughout the Bible. Do not be unclothed with what God gives you. Be clothed with what he gives you. Live in holiness. And then it says, and they assembled at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon, Megiddo. All right, another thing just to note here before we go on a little bit further. The seventh bowl comes down. And so you go straight from this, they're gathered at the battle of Armageddon, and all of a sudden you go to the, the judgment that God has judged, and that Babylon, the great, this city who's been deceiving the nations, this is Rome, that it will fall, it will be split into pieces. Now, fall is probably not the best word for it, but it's broken up and weakened, and it's split, and then the na- cities of the nations do fall, and they're no longer able to support and align with, with Rome, or with Babylon with the beast here. And now I want to get to the, the point. I've been using this picture all week, 
of the chessboard and or all month. I keep saying week because I think Garland, you did that to me. You said week. Uh, but for the month, we've been studying Revelation. And then you got the white horse. So the white horse, remember when we studied the four horsemen, the first horse was white horse. And so when you look at that first horseman, clearly a depiction of Christ. And here you again have another one. The white horse is coming. And so here we have a picture. This is what you're going to read here. Christ coming to the battle of Armageddon. Okay, let's see what happens here. Revelation 19, 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Remember, we got a picture of Jesus in Revelation 1. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many diadems. He wore many crowns. He's the king of kings. He has a name written that no one knows but himself, just as Scripture says. He has a holy name. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, when you think about dipped in blood, uh, be very careful where your mind goes because the picture that we should have of this is he is the one who has sacrificed himself and who is victorious. And so it shouldn't be a negative thing looking at that. The next it says, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. So we know who this is. He's faithful and true. He's the king of kings. He judges. He has everything here is the picture of the word of God. This is Christ coming on the white horse. And then it says here, and the armies of heaven come with him. Revelation 19, 14 through 16. It says, they come with him arrayed in fine linen and white and pure. Remember, their, their garments are clean because all of their sins have been taken away. And they were following him on white horses. For his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. We've read that before. A sharp sword from his mouth. So this is not a literal battle. This is figurative. This is Christ coming by the word of God. By the word from his mouth. The sword that we've been given, what we read about, read about as a part of our armor in Ephesians chapter 6 where we have the sword of the Spirit. And with it, he says, from his mouth, he strikes down the nations. In other words, Christ brings judgment by the words that he speaks. In John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, he says, I don't judge the world, but my words judge the world. My words do. Because when people don't turn to him and submit to him and obey the one who loves and cares for them and by whom all things were created, uh, they're turning against all sense of goodness when they do that. And so he says he strikes the nations and will rule. Now the word here, rule, we've looked at this before. He will shepherd them. That's the Greek word. He's going to shepherd them with a rod of iron. And so someone might think of a rod of iron as a stern tool, but no, that's not the meaning of it. It's more of an idea of a staff and that he's leading in that way and guiding his people. And yes, anybody who gets in the way, any wolves, he strikes them. It says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love that description here. When I read this, you know, I love going to scriptures that encourage me and that strengthen me. And I encourage you that you constantly do that. That you're reading through the Bible uh, throughout the week and doing that. And this is one of those passages, when I read it, I just get this wonderful picture. Christ is victorious. I need to trust in him. I need to do what he tells me to do. That when someone does evil to me or curses me, I'm going to do good back to them and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to leave the justice to God. When other people slander me, I'm going to bless them in return. I know that's a hard thing to do. But that message we see throughout the book of Revelation is you trust in God. Don't be defending yourself. You trust in Him. He is the one who's victorious. He will bring about justice. 
And this passage again, the, just this beautiful description of victorious Christ. I love it. But Christ comes as the Word of God, and again with the sword in His mouth. And again, this is symbolic. It's symbolic coming in victory. And I will say this a little bit further. This battle of Armageddon happens before the millennia of peace. Then there's going to come what we're going to read about in a moment. Then Christ will come again. There's going to be another world conflict, and Christ will come at that time. I do not believe this is the second coming of Christ. I believe this is Christ bringing about justice. As, we, as we've seen from God throughout the whole book of Revelation, this is my inference and understanding of the Scripture of what is happening here. We're going to go on a little bit further now. Let's go to Revelation 19. So Christ comes for the battle, but there's no battle. Like I said, this is just victory. So we're going to read about the victory at Armageddon. So John says, he's seeing the vision, and he says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. So the war from Satan, the beast, and the false prophet was against Christ, against the church. And it says here that the beast was captured. There's no mention here of the battle. It just says the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet who was in his presence who did many signs which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those who were worshipping, they were all taken captive. There was no actual battle. Christ was just victorious. I love it. It's beautiful. And it says, and these two, here comes the justice. These two, the false prophet who has been deceiving is thrown in the lake of fire. And the beast, he's thrown in the lake of fire. The depiction of hell. It says, these two are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Christ. Not that they were actually slain, but in the sense that they were judged by the words of Christ. They were slain by the word that came from the mouth of Him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In other words, this death, it was impending. Their end is doomed. And the picture of a battle being over and the birds, the gloomy picture of birds overhead, you kind of, you get that there. It's futile to resist and turn into war against Christ. You're not going to win. Now, here's another question here. We look at the beast. We look at what's going on here with the false prophet. But what about Satan? Why is Satan not mentioned here? Did you notice that? Satan's not mentioned. Where's the dragon? So how, how did this work out? Well, first of all, we're going to see what happens to Satan. But what happened with Satan's plans for war and battle? Nothing. He intended it. He made war on the saints and on Christians. And then when Christ came and Christ brought about victory, it was over. And in this, you begin to read that there's this long period. It's described here as a thousand years, a millennium. And there's a time of peace. And what we have here, we begin reading in Revelation 20. I'm not going to read all of this, but I'll leave that to you. In Revelation 20 at the very beginning, the angel binds Satan and casts him into an abyss for a thousand years. So Satan is bound during this period. Okay, that's to be understood. What's he bound from doing? He's bound from deceiving the nations and worldwide persecution of Christians. Okay? Do we have persecution going on today? Has there been persecution of Christians from the first century? Yes. But has it been worldwide like it was in the time of Rome? I don't know if I can say that. I don't see that. So you could make the case that there has been somewhat peace. You could say, well, I don't think that this period of the millennium has come yet. I understand that if you have that reservation. But this is what we read here. This millennium, again, Satan is bound up, not able to deceive the nations. 
And then these questions are the ones I've been addressing. Has the worldwide persecution of the beast ended? Well, I think that has. I think the, the, the persecution of Rome certainly has ended. Now, some might make the case that, um, and I've read this, and it's, it's go back to some older commentaries of claiming that the Roman or the papal church was a part of that persecution. And I can see someone thinking that if you lived under the papal church 400 years ago, 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, you might think that. But has the worldwide persecution of the beast ended? And I would say, in regards to Rome, yes. Is Satan still deceiving the nations to war against the church? As a whole, worldwide, I can't say that. But we do see this still going on. And so we have a message today that is still relevant to us as Christians. No matter what government or authoritative power says, or what the media will put us forward to doing, we need to make sure that we're following Christ. And we need to be, open our eyes to any warning signs. When we look at uh, the government and they're doing things that are evil, those should be warning signs to us that, okay, I can't fully trust them. I want to trust those who are Christians. And I want to trust those who are um, doing what is good and who are not persecuting Christians and who are promising freedom. I can trust them. So we want to be very careful about that, and I think that's one of the messages of Revelation. Let's go on a little bit further. So after this thousand years, there's an end to the millennium of the thousand years. And what happens? When the thousand years was ended, it says Satan will be released from his prison. He's released. He will come out and he will deceive the nations. He's going to do what? He's going to do what he did before. And it says from all the four corners of the earth. That's not a literal description. It wasn't literal in the first century either. And it says Gog and Magog. This is a reference to evil nations like Persia coming over to Euphrates, that's the reference there, to gather them for battle and their number is like the sand of the sea. So again, Satan's going to deceive the nations. There's going to be another worldwide persecution. It's coming. But what's going to be the end of it? What's that battle going to look like? There is no battle again. This is what happens. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. Who are the saints? The Bible says we are. The Christian, as Christians, we're made holy by God. And Ephesians 1 makes it clear that we are saints. He says, and they surround the beloved city. So probably a reference to Jerusalem or the church again. So Christians are being persecuted. The church is surrounded. And then it says, what happens? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So another thing that stands out to me here, a lot of people have this picture that Satan rules hell. I don't read of any other passage in the Scriptures of, of Satan actually going to hell until this point. And when he goes there, he doesn't rule. He goes there as punishment from God. He has rebelled against God and has come to its full end. And at this time, God delivers his people one last time. And after this, the point in Revelation, we begin to have even more hope and joy being given to us in the things, the great things that happen here in the book of Revelation. But every time that Satan gathers the nations for battle, God wins. Christ is victorious. That's what we have confidence in. It's a wonderful thing. That's what we've been seeing as we've been studying through the book of Revelation. And God bless you. You've gone through how many lessons now? This is, about the, this is the fourth one. And the first one was pretty easy. The second one was probably the most difficult. Last week was a little bit more difficult, but I hope today was a little bit easier. Probably one of the more difficult studies as well.
But as we look at it, what we see here is we see the ultimate message of the book of Revelation. What we've been studying. Christ is victorious. Lean upon Him. Endure. Whatever happens, turn and make sure that Christ is King. That you're leaning on Him and following His lead. That you trust in Him and you obey Him like the song we're about to sing in a moment. But what happens after Satan is cast into the lake of fire? What we have next is the day of judgment. And so all who have died are resurrected. This is the dead are brought forth before the throne of, of Christ, before God, and the books are opened. And there's the book of life, which would have all the names of those who are saved. Again, this is what John is seeing. How much of this is symbolic or not, I don't know. I'd like to think there's an actual book of life. But we do know that the books, he says, you will be judged by the books. I take that to mean the Scriptures, the Bible, the standard of, which God, of God's Word. And so we read this in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away. The earth and the heavens fled away. We'll talk more about that next week, of why that is. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, which is pictured in a number of places throughout the Bible. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. This is the picture of judgment. The Bible has often given us warnings, and Jesus warned us so much about His and God's final judgment I want to encourage you this morning that you make sure that you are faithful to God and Christ. That you are so faithful that in the sense that you are obedient to Him, that you have a living faith, that you believe that Jesus is Lord, and that He rose from the dead, that you confess that with your mouth, and having confessed it, you've repented of your sins, and that repenting of your sins, you have died to your old self and buried that person in the waters of baptism, as we read about in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, and is God who raises us to newness of life and washes away all sins. If you haven't obeyed that gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by yourself dying and being buried and resurrecting new life, you're not saved yet. We want you to follow the scripture, and this congregation encourages anybody, if you need prayers and encouragement, you're going through hard times and difficult times, if you're enduring slander, maybe you've endured persecution, because I know that has come about more and more here in the United States, and that many have had to uh, endure for their, own, um, for their own faith. We encourage you this morning. We want to pray with you. We want you to take as much as you can from the book of Revelation, and we want to listen to the warning of God that there is a great day coming, a day in which there will be judgment, God's judgment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I have a reference right here, chapter 5, he says, knowing of that great day and that judgment of God, we persuade men. I encourage you this morning, obey the gospel. You need prayers. Come forward. Let's sing together.